been teasing and teasing and teasing, and we never thought it would arrive, but here it is. It's the first episode of our new eight-part series, A History of Buffalo Theater, on RLTP's Off-Road, with me, Pete Pomisano. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. Please remember to subscribe because you don't want to miss an episode of this monumental series. I have to tell you a little bit about how this all started. But first, let's start the special theme music for the series, A History of Buffalo Theater. And there is the ticking clock, time passing by, and here comes the music. So here's what happened. One day, Scott Barron says to me, you want to do something about the history of theater in Buffalo? And I thought, oh, oh, oh my God. Yes, yes, I definitely want to do something about that. That's something that's very near and dear to my heart. It's something I think needs to be preserved. It's something that I really, really want to talk about. So I remembered that I had saved, I had bookmarked a page from Buffalo Spree, a page written by Ron Emke when he did a timeline of Buffalo theater from the 1800s up to 2010. And it was published 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And I saved it for some reason. And I thought, this is a good starting point. And I looked at it and I learned so much. But then I thought, well, you know, we forgot about this and we forgot about that. And, you know, since I'm an old guy, I remember a lot of things. So I started adding to it. And it was like a two or three page document. Now it's up to 18 pages. And in these pages, I have included everything I could find, everything I could I could research about Buffalo theater and the history dating all the way back, but mostly the modern history that I am most familiar with. And every time I went to research something, I went to a webpage called Buffalo Stories. Turns out it's written by a guy named Steve Seashon. You've probably heard my interview with Steve Seashon. And this guy has a webpage called Buffalo Stories with pictures and stories and all sorts of stuff. And very often it includes Buffalo theater history. So I said, I'm going to get Ron Emke. I'm going to get Steve Seashon. We're going to Zoom together. We're going to talk about at least the first few years. <laughs> it ended up being like up to 1959, because before that, I couldn't find anybody who was still around. And we talked about it, and it was fascinating. And that's what you're going to hear over these first two episodes. Now, I know we're going to make a lot of mistakes. I know I have made a lot of mistakes. My memory isn't perfect, and I've resigned myself to the fact that there may be errors, facts, dates, or, or just leaving things out, errors of omission. And I consider this a living document, both in the audio and in the written version. So I am requesting help from anybody who has better knowledge than myself. Write to me at rltpoffroad at gmail.com. Let me know how I screwed up in as much detail as you can manage. And I promise, wherever possible, I'll make every effort to correct the errors on the written document. And if I get enough major errors and they demand correction, I'll devote a, an entire future podcast to correcting the audio record as well. Because I had to make some decisions about what and who is worthy of inclusion and, and who I should interview now, don't get me wrong, because I'm going to try to include everybody. 
everybody I can think of, every small theater, every large theater. But I thought to myself, how do I narrow this down? So I decided to concentrate my focus on mainstream theaters, producing theaters that have survived and thrived and in some way influenced the direction of professional theater in Buffalo. Because even though other theaters have come and gone, I had to make some choices, some decisions somewhere in terms of who I would interview and whose voices and words would be included in the upcoming episodes. So these first sections will concentrate on the years from 1814 to 1959. And in future sessions, we're going to get all the way up to the present. So if you're listening to the podcast because you want to know the history of the Irish Classical Theater or the Cavanochi or, or the New Phoenix Theater, we'll get to it. I promise you, just be patient because that's way in the future. Episode five, six, seven, something like that. We're in episode one. Be patient. Here on what I am calling A History of Buffalo Theater. Live performing theater, not movie theaters, live performances. Without further ado, let's hear from Ron and Steve and me. And Ron will be over in the right ear, a little bit leaning toward the right side. And Steve, I've sort of moved him a little bit toward the left side so you can tell the difference between who's talking. But here we go. Episode one of Buffalo Theater History, featuring me, Ron Emke, and Steve Seashon. So, uh, starting right off on this most impossible of journeys, we'll start with 1814, the first mention of a performing group, the Thalian Society, which sounds like a Star Trek episode from the original series, in April 18th, Buffalo Gazette. That was one of the many newspapers uh, in Buffalo at the time. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the leading newspapers in Buffalo. I mean, there were a couple, but the Gazette is the one that everybody refers to in history. So it is. You probably picked the right one. Yes, sir. Clearly, the Thalian Society was important enough for them to have been picked up by what you're now telling me was a, the major, the leading paper in the in the city. So that's kind of impressive. But you know what? You know what's impressive? Well, maybe not impressive, but definitely something worth thinking about is that when we talk about Buffalo in 1814, we're not really talking about a city. We're talking about a village that probably had, you know, a couple of thousand people at the most. Is that right? As we go through these numbers, uh, it's important to realize that Buffalo doubles in population every 10 years from 1810 to 1870. So in 1810, there were about 1,500 people in Buffalo. Mm. You know, Buffalo gets burned down, then we come back. But every, every 10 years, it doubles in size. So the Buffalo Gazette, it wasn't being delivered to uh, 300,000 households, you know? Um, Circulation, 25. <laughs> right. And so yeah. Buffalo was a tiny, tiny, tiny place. Steve, you actually raised something that I, I was trying, one of the dates, uh, key dates I was trying to get that I didn't before we started was when the big fire was that basically yeah. wiped the slate clean. Was that 1810, did you say? Or? Well, it was the War of 1812. Okay. Uh, 18, yeah, 1813 or 1814. I, I probably should know that off the top of my head, but it, it was December during the War of 1812. So 1813 oh, okay. or 1814. Gotcha. Yep. 
Because that certainly, I mean, that's to me the kind of, I guess, ancient and modern Buffalo in my eyes is you had things happening in this little community before, but it's when it rebuilt itself that it, hmm. what we think of as Buffalo started to form. And as you say, it was the small group of people. My hunch with this Thalian society, and this is just complete conjecture, is I think this is during that period of kind of Greek and Roman classicism that you give yourself this air of importance if you have a you know a sort of highfalutin name a that fancy refers name. to right. you know period of the past. I didn't want to go research the Thalian Society and look it up. Yeah, right, right, right. We, we haven't got time for that. But yes. if you're interested, go look it up, folks. And the context that you've just given me of the, about this, this rebuilt Buffalo in such a small group puts all of the next few dates into a real different perspective, I think. Even the fact that 1815, the first amateur performance in Buffalo, amateur performance in Buffalo. So again, with a population that small, how do you get to this designation that here are the professionals and here are the amateurs? Well, and the production that they put on was commemorating the end of uh, of the war of 1812, that it had such a huge impact on oh. the entire area. So, of course, I immediately think of waiting for Guffman and putting on this pageant <laughs> that is going to celebrate the history of your community. But this is recent history. This would be like people next year doing a five-act story of the pandemic. Of the pandemic. It's people telling their own stories. Let me just read this whole thing here. The first yeah. amateur performance in Buffalo apparently occurs on March 17th. The five-act melodrama, The Tragedy of Douglas. Who does that refer to? It's presented at Sandytown near the current site of the Erie Basin Marina in celebration of the end of, of the War of 1812. you have any idea what the tragedy of Douglas refers to? Is Douglas a place? Is it a person? Was it a general in the war? Uh, do we have any Steve? idea? <laughs> yeah, I, nothing really springs to mind, you know, that I would have heard or seen from the War of 1812. Doesn't mean that it doesn't refer to anything. But what it does refer to, again, what to kind of keep in mind is that Buffalo went as far north as the ballpark. You know, we talk about the Barry Basin Marina, Barry yeah. Basin Marina to the ballpark, and that was it. That, that was, was Buffalo. it. <laughs> yeah, it, it sparsely populated between there and there. So another thing to keep in mind is theater are the performing arts in this period consisted not just of the sort of like Shakespearean drama, but magic shows. We'll start to see some references of that later in the timeline. These kind of historical pageants. I would assume things like passion plays, not necessarily in Buffalo, but that sort of that sort of approach to drama that's mm -hmm. very different again just as steve is encouraging us to think of buffalo as a different you know on a different scale a different context i guess i would encourage people to think of theater of entertainment as something uh, that is connected to what we now think of but also different yeah it's probably not what we think of as here are 30 people or 100 people sitting and there are people up on a proscenium stage performing exactly you have to look at it in a completely varied perspective about about what theater was so even yeah. in your in your original document here ron this definition of theater has to be looked at in the context of steve's version of what buffalo was then exactly as opposed to our modern version of what theater is 
These are all great points. I have a feeling this is gonna this is gonna <laughs> go for nine hours. <laughs> no, but I'm but I'm delighted with it so far because I'm the dumbest one here. Okay, the tragedy of Paul Masano. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome but, back to part twelve of our yes, yes, part series. That's right. Okay, eighteen twenty one to twenty two. The first building designed to house live performances with gas lights, known simply as the theater was constructed on Main Street at Court Street across from the Eagle Tavern and featured a Jim Crow performance. Its name would be joined by many other theaters. And then there's just a list of all these theaters that I added later on. Those weren't in your Mm -hmm. original document, Ron. The Sanger Hall, the Tack, the Star, the Majestic, and so on. And of course, we know Jim Crow, we know the concept. What do you suppose a Jim Crow performance was? Well, blackface is going to play an unfortunately large role in this saga in a few entries. And I think if that's from my text, I'm assuming that I took it from whatever advertisement that I found for this production. So it was actually a calling card? Like, oh, come and see the new Jim Crow production? That's my hunch. We're talking about a, a document that the roots of which I, or the seeds of which I uh, were planted when I did this timeline in the year 2010. Right. So right. this is 12 years ago. We're talking about things that happened in the 19th century, but in my own life, this is feels like almost a half a lifetime away. <laughs> I see. And this, and this date we're talking about, uh, was 1821. We're talking literally 200 years ago that this stuff was going on. Right, right. Whatever you think a Jim Crow performance was, you're probably right. So in 1829, the Buffalo Museum, the city's first amusement palace, combining a saloon, well, of course, still going on today, a saloon, theater, and exhibition hall opens on the northeast corner of Washington and Exchange Streets. And an amusement palace, multifunctional uh, come in, get drunk, and also uh, see a live show and maybe play some games. I don't know. This also sounds to me like the museum in the sense of Barnum, P.T. Barnum's museum, ah. not the kind of thing that we now picture the Albright Knox or the Buffalo Historical Society. A museum of oddities, perhaps. And just this kind of grab bag of stuff that is spectacle, basically. Ah. But there's something really important that I just realized that we skipped over. When you talked about the 1821 perform of the indoor building, it, it had gas lights. Oh, that's yeah. really important because <laughs> these gas lights did two things. One, the good thing was they meant that people could do theater inside, and so you could have performances at night. Mm-hmm. And the bad thing is they could catch on fire, and they could burn entire buildings, which will happen throughout um, this entire timeline. Exactly. Right. So many places. In fact, there was one called the Inferno that burned down. So <laughs> yes. think a little carefully. I used to frequent the Inferno over at Glen Park. We'll we'll get to that. Well, I'll I'll get to that later on. Yeah. So gas lights was that in itself an exhibition? Well, at some point, running water became a thing in Buffalo. <laughs> running water wasn't. I mean, you, you think about it. Yeah. The first German immigrant to Buffalo was a guy named Water John, and Water John used to back up his cart into Lake Erie and go and deliver water all around the village of Buffalo. As we wow. progress, we go past the ballpark and get to uh, Chippewa Street. Chippewa Street was the northern boundary of Buffalo up until 1832. So Water John would drive around with his cart, 
and you'd, you know, you'd sell water to ladies. Eventually, we got running water in the city of Buffalo. And, and to have the gas lights, you need the gas to get there. And to build that infrastructure shows, you know, sort of the progression of the city of Buffalo. If I'm here to talk about sort of, you know, Buffalo as a city, the fact that we had gas lights means that there was a way to get gas to those places. So mm-hmm. Buffalo is becoming a bigger place. If one place had gas lights, then there were probably others. But we're talking about the village of Buffalo, this tiny village. But there were places, you know, I live in the Parkside neighborhood now. There were two or three houses in what is now the Parkside neighborhood along Main Street. So people would probably come, I imagine, from the Granger House in what is now Forest Lawn Cemetery. He would have taken the couple-hour trek <laughs> down uh, a muddy Main Street to go and watch, see some live theater. People may have come from Williamsville and yeah. taken a couple-hour uh, trek down the muddy Main Street. So. so do you get the sense that gas light was the same way we used to go over to somebody's house to see color TV. I would imagine that seeing a live theater performance at night with gas lighting or just being able to do anything at night, the same way that at some point it became impressive that we had, uh, that Buffalo was the first place to have electric lighting electric. on streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same way that to see a ball game, a baseball game under the, the big lights, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, that became a, a big deal. Mm-hmm. I imagine that it was probably a pretty big deal to be able to go and see a, a theater performance and probably was the start at some point of sort of a professional theater. The fact that that this was a big enough attraction where people might pay to go and, and see this, that mm-hmm. we might have uh, professional promoters and professional actors and professional directors and, all, and that sort of thing, all that evolution, all kind of in one in one idea. Almost like the 60s when all of a sudden, or 50s, when air conditioning became right. something to, let's go to the movies so we can see, so we can, so we can cool sit off. in air conditioning. Interesting. Yeah. That's Lafayette Theater, uh, by the way, in Buffalo was the first theater in the country to have air conditioning because, you know, the guy who invented the air conditioner was right here in Buffalo. That's so. right. <laughs> 1833, Edwin Dean and Dave... David McKinney, former employees of the museum, opened the Seneca Street Playhouse above a store on Seneca between Maine and Washington in 1835. 1835, They move into what will become the old Eagle Street Theater at the southwest corner of Eagle and Washington Street. The venue, which attracts as many as 60 traveling actors a summer, features state-of-the-art scenery, props, trap doors, and mysteries used by conjurers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> According to Samuel Welch's 1891 history, Recollections of Buffalo, mysteries used by conjurers, magicians, and such. Yeah, those would be those magic shows I'm, I was referring to, which, which are kind of the origins of modern, one of the origin points of modern-day theatrical machinery, basically. Mm-hmm. A certain group of the audience doesn't care so much about the, what the play is, what the spectacle is. They're interested in the technology of it. And because of Buffalo's connection to the New York theater world, we were on the cutting edge of some of those innovations. To, to now have, you know, a gaslit theater, number one, and now you've got all these other quote-unquote state-of-the-art theater features. Right. Now we've opened up to more what we would think of as our modern concept of, of a play. 
Yeah. And also, once you have these technologies, you can start to have the rise of realist theater. Mm -hmm. You can do our naturalist theater, I should say. You can do things that look like, you know, the interior of, of a fashionable home or a street scene. Right. Because before that, I have this theory that uh, the amount of imagination that we're required to use is related to the state of the technology at the time. Mm -hmm. And what looks current to us or acceptable to us as realism depends on what technology is out there, either on the on the live stage or later on a movie screen and after that on a television screen. And of course, that's the reason why in Shakespeare's plays, there are descriptions, oh, here we are in the forest now, and oh, yes. here we are in the king's chamber room. and oh, The seacoast of Bohemia. Yes, that's right. right. We're just, use your imagination and pretend we're there, and it's probably as good as anything we could have built. But the imagination is the, is the muscle, I think, that art works best with, personally. Nice. 1835, the city's second major performance venue, the Buffalo Theater opens at the corner of Washington and South Division, featuring a stock company and promising all the principal stars now in the United States, as well as an efficient police to ensure decorum. So mm. now we've got touring companies coming right. into Buffalo. We're really, we're only 20 years away from when Steve was talking about it being basically a trading post. Mm -hmm. And here we are, all of a sudden we've got touring companies coming through Buffalo to perform at Buffalo Theater with efficient police. And you know the the population of Buffalo has doubled in each of the each of those decades. So it's two right. decades. So we've doubled in population. Also in the interim, we've had the Erie Canal show up, which is bringing people from all over the place. Oh, I forgot about that. You know, throughout Buffalo's history, one of the major draws, one of the major abilities to bring in all sorts of of entertainment, whether it's sports, you know, a basketball team or uh, bicycle racing, eventually or whether it's uh, or boxing or you know whether it's theater or whether it's music the fact that buffalo was a hub for transportation along the erie canal along mm. uh, train lines along all these various things made it very easy for buffalo to be a stop as buffalo is getting bigger chicago is also getting bigger so right. you know forever throughout buffalo's history uh, ron pulled out some of the elements of those ads i will guarantee you that Maybe the element that he didn't pull out was, you know, the biggest whatever between Buffalo and Chicago. That was constantly, <laughs> Buffalo was constantly the biggest whatever between Buffalo and Chicago. Or do you mean between New York and Chicago or between? And, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, between, yeah, yeah, right. That's what I thought, okay. That comes up later on when we talk about the first movie theater, Vitascope Theater, we're going to get to it, yes, advertised right. as the best between New York and Chicago or something. Uh, constantly, and, that's, and I meant to say between New York and Chicago, between sure. New York and Chicago. And it was literally, you know, all these professional companies, if you had a, Think of what it takes now to, to pack in a professional theater company to yeah. move from, you know, from place to place. It was the same deal. And if you uh, had to make a, uh, you know, in 1840, I can imagine that trip was pretty arduous. If you were trying to, to go from New York to Chicago, let's spend two weeks in Buffalo, you know, and, and I never think about that. As you think of the Erie Canal as opening up the interior of the country to trade. But you never think also about it becoming a transportation route that allowed people to go through Buffalo, travel through Buffalo, perhaps stay, perhaps help increase the population, perhaps do a show, perhaps make a couple of bucks right here. So that's also another very interesting point. 
that's been key to Buffalo's identity for decades, if not a century and a half, this location yeah. and this a degree of cultural exchange. Buffalo itself had this other kind of Midwestern vibe and I think that Buffalo has elements of both of those things, this kind of Midwestern uh, practicality and also this sort of New York City influence. But you have this constant flow, and I think that that starts with with the uh, the Erie Canal. That's a, another very interesting point. So 19, 1842, Buffalo-born Steele McKay writes 30 plays and starts the first acting school in the nation. Well, it's huge. Steele McKay is someone who, I mean, to non-theater you know, theater folk, and I would put myself in this category, non-theater historians, I had never heard of the guy, but uh, he was incredibly important. I mean, the, I, the, the wording is unclear. It sounds like he wrote 30 plays in one year, and I don't <laughs> think that's, that was the point, but, but he was huge. He was born here, but he, le- like a lot of people, born here but left for New York City. But this acting school that he started is a really important thing because before this, you would have this kind of European, I, I mean, this is happening in the arts in the United States at this time. You, everyone was sort of laboring under the, you know, the European model or the, or the United Kingdom model is, you know, what acting is, that style of delivery and the development of an American style is happening. And Steele McKay is one of the central players in that. And also one of the things I learned about him was that he would write plays that required, in order for the play to happen, new technologies would have to be invented mm. uh, so that because of him, you know, we had the, and I'm going to give a, I'm going to make up an example, uh, the way that curtains, uh, stage curtains are used and particular curtains mean particular things that has a lot to do with the requirements of his script. He was a very influential figure and not just in terms of his popularity, but in the, as a mentor to future generations and developing this American style and also this technology. That's, that's really important. And again, I had never heard of him, but uh, I didn't do the research that you have done. Now, when we get to also 1842, we get to Buffalo's Christie Minstrels. This is huge. <laughs> which it, it is huge. Uh, they perform a minstrel show later to become the most popular 19th century American entertainment form in the Canal District. The Canal District, maybe Steve should chime in here and talk about that, because that is a fascinating chapter in Buffalo's history. So I'll pass it over to him. The thing that the thing that frustrates me and what I love, well, let's put it this way. The thing that I love about this conversation is that it brings together all these different elements of Buffalo's history all at the same time, mm-hmm. um, because while we have the Canal District, which was the low rent district, which was uh, Irish, very poor Irish immigrants who came to Buffalo to work along uh, Buffalo's waterfront and to do jobs that nobody else wanted to do in the grain elevators that were invented in Buffalo Mm -hmm. um, and and all these different things. In the same way that this sort of new way of theater 
was sort of conceived of here in Buffalo. So many different new ways of things were, were being conceived of in Buffalo. We had uh, the, the way that uh, that grain was being stored and, and really helped open up the, uh, the middle part of America and all of these different things. It was going on in Buffalo. And it brought people who lived in places like the Canal District, sort of, uh, you know, my ancestors, the, the, the sort of people who came from nothing in other places, but all the way up to uh, the very wealthy people who own the grain elevators, who were paying the way to uh, to establish theater. Uh, these sort of nouveau riche people who were uh, establishing all these great banks and all these great industries in Buffalo. What are you doing with that money? Well, you want to be entertained, right? Well, I guess in order to be entertained, I've got to build a theater. Well, in order to build a theater, uh, once I build a theater, I have to pay actors and I have to bring it. So you had all the, this confluence of you know, as Buffalo is doubling in population every 10 years, all of these great things going on. And you had so many different pieces of Buffalo. In the beginning, a short time ago, we're talking about Buffalo as this tiny homogenous uh, little village. But just like now, when we talk about the different parts of the city, I, I, it, was, it had to be underscored then, right? That you had these very poor people who were living uh, on, the, on the water's edge, maybe speaking the Irish language, maybe speaking Italian eventually, not even speaking the same language as the people who lived up uh, Delaware Street, which was become Delaware Avenue, the, the very wealthy people. So when we talk about history, we, we treat you know the people who lived along the canal and we talk about them and think about them, but we're not necessarily thinking about the wealthy people who only lived a couple of miles away up Delaware I see. and how they interacted as a, to me, that's, that's interesting. And that's, that's what I love about this conversation is that we're sort of thinking about all these people together because, you know, hey, everybody enjoys a show. <laughs> that's, that's right. And, and that's really what we're coming to with, with uh, Christie's Minstrels, how it, you know, was born in these theaters in this very poor section of town. You know, I know we don't know of all the, the theaters that, that would have been open there because they were opened by people. You know, there was never a guy from whatever newspaper uh, whether it was the Buffalo Gazette or the, the Courier or the commercial advertiser, they didn't wander into that part of town so much. So, yeah, it's just very interesting and, uh, you know, a very exciting time in, in Buffalo's history where we were at the cutting edge of almost everything, mm -hmm. you know. The Canal District, and uh, correct me if I have the geography wrong, but I am picturing the area that is now Canal Side. Canal Side, uh, essentially. exactly. Yep. And mm -hmm. also, I, I also imagine the apartments. Marine Drive Apartments. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. That yep. general area. That is Nelson. the Canal District. Yep. Yes. Yep. The Canal District was also known as the Infected District because uh, there were, I believe, at least three major cholera epidemics uh, in the late 19th century in in Buffalo that like wiped out hundreds of people, which would be a significant amount of the population. So yeah, we're getting at this point a cosmopolitan mix for better and for worse in terms of the clashes of classes, of ethnicities. Every, I'll say, 10 years or so, you're getting a new wave of immigrants coming in, each of them having to deal with bigotry, prejudice, and all of those things. Now, the Canal District, what makes it so remarkable to me is that Yes, you had all these people coming in and going out, and then you had bars developing. This is when really Buffalo takes off as a, as a shot in a beer town. And you also have this fine line between theater and prostitution. So <laughs> Sometimes no line at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, in that infected district, 
because infected, yes. you know, it was a euphemism right. as much as it was, you know, well, we're right. talking about right. cholera, but yes. we weren't yes. necessarily talking about cholera, right? Exactly. I mean, there are other things yeah. we're talking there are about. Other too, sure. Sure. So the profession of acting at this time is not held in particularly high regard. No one wants their kid to go off and perform in the infected district, for instance. So it's not exactly like the whole notion of what theater is, is kind of controversial at the time. And that's going to intensify for the next 30 or 40 years, as we'll, as we'll see in this, this timeline here. In the same issue of Buffalo Spree, which is September 2010, that the germ of this timeline that we're working with mm -hmm. is found, it's an entire issue about Western New York theater, past and present. In addition to the timeline, there are a number of stories, two of which are written by Jim Walkovic, who was a writer at the time. I don't know if he's still writing for Spree or not, but one is about uh, the Christie Menstrels. You can find a, much of that issue online if you just go to buffalospree.com and do a little searching. So the Christie Menstrels, there is some controversy as to whether they were the first full blackface minstrel show or the second. And it's not the kind of uh, competition you no, want to yeah, win. No, it's not a claim to fame you want to, yeah. Right. But there is no question that we were the hotbed of basically blackface performance. And the origins of the Christie Minstrels, Ed Christie came in and married a woman who, who had one of the bars along the canal there in this canal district. He marries her, and then he's this kind of entrepreneur guy. And there has already been the tradition of blackface, but no one had had the brilliant—I mean, we're talking about these other— theatrical and, uh, and technological innovations. Well, he had the innovation of, let's put whole shows together of this and send them out around the country. Mm. And they'll become this incredibly popular form of entertainment. And he was a Buffalo native. Uh, no, he was not. He moved here, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the, his wife, the innkeeper, was a Buffalo native. He came in and then he made this his uh, base of operations. Ed Christie. Yes. It's sometimes called Ned Christie, I think. It's a pretty dark mark on not just Buffalo's history, but American history. But to ignore it or deny it is to do an injustice to the way that popular culture has functioned. Mm -hmm. It's so easy. It has been until recently easy to point the finger at the United States South and say that that's the hotbed of racism and to pretend that, you know, the North, uh, the Yankees were this morally superior group. But, but racism is woven into the, the fabric of the entire country. So, and it's entertainment. There's just no getting around it. Thank you. 1852, the Eagle Street Theater was considered Buffalo's grandest building when it was constructed in 1836. And as Ron <laughs> alluded to earlier, it was then destroyed by fire in 1852 after a performance by Lola Montez, who <laughs> gave a hot performance and uh... yes well and then there's more to that story just because <laughs> there was there were there was the sort of the curse of Lola Montez there was oh. this uh, I mean a lot you know theater is full of you know ghost stories and haunted buildings and so forth and so superstitions uh, theater is full of superstitions yeah 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 so there was much talk about uh about Lola there uh, this next one, I think, is also, well, I think these are all significant. 1861, E.A. Southern stars in Our American Cousin, which was also the, the last play Lincoln ever saw, at the Met Metropolitan Theater. Certain sources suggest that John Wilkes Booth performs in the same venue 
as Macbeth in 1863, though there is some dis dispute about whether Booth ever played Buffalo. Clearly, the rest of his family did, because he had, he had a theatrical family. It wasn't, he wasn't the only actor. After John Wilkes Booth assassinates Lincoln, the term theater falls out of favor, and the Metropolitan is renamed the Academy of Music. You started using music as a euphemism, and this is what I was alluding to earlier. Already, actors have a bad reputation, but when you have an actor assassin, and John Wilkes Booth wasn't just some, you know, disgruntled guy. He was, I mean, his his family name was very well known, mm. and they were a family of actors. And so if you've got actors assassinating presidents and you've got actors performing in whorehouses, then... And then we, we jump immediately to, well, let's, let's ban the use of the word theater. <laughs> you know, it's immediately yes, we've got a reaction is... and... Completely in line with the way that we think about things today as right. well. So, just to wrap up that whole thought, neatly with a bow, Abraham Lincoln did lie in state in Buffalo at mm. St. James Hall, yes. which was also a place where you know, you know theater and and uh, you know various things went on. St. James Hall also burned to the ground. <laughs> so, just with a neat bow on everything, uh, you know, he, <laughs> Lincoln lied was in state in Buffalo at St. James Hall and, and uh, we, on his way back to uh, Illinois to be uh, interred in a hall that burned down a couple of years later. So, And we started this whole city conversation talking about the city being on fire <laughs> after in the War of 1812, and now we're just continuing the theme of flammability. The spirit of Irv Weinstein uh, <laughs> lives on. Blaze, busters, battle, barn. You know. Burning buildings in Buffalo. Now, this is, this is an insert uh, because we... Missed it the first time, so we're going back and adding it in now, and that is in 1883, uh, the German Young Men's Association built the Tex original structure at Main and Edwards Streets, right next to St. Louis Church there, with the hope of reproducing one of the great opera houses of Germany. This is from Jim Wachowiak's article on the Tech and the Erlanger theaters. The Tech Theater was really important. We did talk about this, but it was, um, you know, these venues change names frequently and so right. forth. So go back to 1883. That's when the Tech Theater opened in Maine and Edward. And at that time, and Steve has been making this point frequently in a, in a valuable way, Maine and Edward was considered way out there mm -hmm. on the outskirts of town. The uh, German Young Men's Association built the venue in the first place, and it was originally a music hall, and it presented Bach and Beethoven and the European and specifically German classical music. I think this was one of the theaters we've talked about that burned down, but yes, it sure. burned down two years after it opened, along with St. Louis Church. Now, here, this has got to be major significance here as well. 1884, Michael Shea from the First Ward and St. Catharines, born in 1859. He opens a saloon at 53 Elk Street. Michael Shea, originally from St. Catharines, or he was born here? Let me, let me look at this again. He was born in St. Catharines and came to Buffalo very early. Came to Buffalo, and he opens his first saloon. Shall we call it an entertainment sort of venue? This is his humble beginnings. His first real theater opens later, but he comes into the theater uh, world through the the saloon and tavern world, which we have already seen happening in the uh, Canal District. Okay. And well, when we say Elk Street, it's important to point out that South Park Avenue has its own 
uh, storied history, which we don't need to go into here. But suffice it to say that what we now know as South Park Avenue, a good portion of it, was Elk Street. So Elk Street, a very uh, small number on Elk Street, means that this wasn't too far away from what was the Canal, the Canal District. District. Yes. Uh, yeah, 50-something Elk Street was probably... Uh, about where the arena is now, oh. that sort of area. So very close to the Canal District, if not technically at that point in the Canal District. So Michael Shea is operating in that same realm that we were talking about before. Yes. So just important to point out and think about. It wasn't by chance that he picked that location for a tavern. Right, yeah, where there were there were, there were something like at the height of it, 96 saloons in that, that uh, a few block area right. of, yes. of the uh, Canal District. So yeah, Michael Shea was one of them. It makes, uh, you know, Chippewa look like nothing yeah. in terms of the... Right. the- well, South Buffalo right now still has the, the greatest concentration, doesn't it, of, uh, of saloons within a like a 10-block radius? I don't know what that... Well, we from South Buffalo like to say that, whether it's true or not. <laughs> so uh, we will claim it, whether it's, uh, whether it's right. actually North true. North Tonawanda goes for, uh, for, you know, its version <laughs> yeah. of the record. So we're proud of our beer and our fire right. here. Yeah, absolutely. 1887 Buffalo Music Hall, a grand Romanesque-style replacement for the great Sanger Hall, Concert Hall opens in October. Much was made of the fact that Sanger Hall, that these were, um, the designs for these buildings came, uh, they were they were taken directly from German architecture of the time. Oh. So again, it's using, we were still struggling with an American identity. You know, we were taking from Europe, mm -hmm. we're stealing from Africa, and we're trying to create something that is uniquely American. Buffalo's German immigrants are, are sort of forgotten about because, you know, it, it became very uncool to be a German uh, after the First World War and became even more uncool to be a German uh, right. as the Second World War progressed. But the first wave of immigration in Buffalo was really uh, the Germans. And they were all of these various uh, words that I've only read and can't really pronounce because they're long <laughs> German words. But all of these, uh, you know, music halls, and, uh, and they, they brought really this German art form to Buffalo, including all of these music halls. Whereas it might look like, you know, we're stealing from, from Europe, um, these people are just- That's a better way to phrase it than what I said. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're bringing something from your own home to your new land, so. Yeah, they're recreating, and even yeah. within the, and, and interestingly, even within, you know, the German population, and we see this with uh, the Italians that came here and the Irish and the Polish as well, within the German immigrants, there was sort of a stratification. So the Germans from this part of Germany wouldn't associate with the Germans mm. from this part of Germany, and they each created their own sort of- um, Italians the same uh, way. You know, different yeah. place. Right, Italians and Polish and, and, and Irish uh, all across the board. But an outsider's perspective would just see this German hall or two German halls on opposing corners. But the Germans would know that, well, this is these are my people and these are the other people. So mm -hmm. uh, we saw that over and over again as, uh, as Buffalo was growing. Do we think that there's any suggestion that this Buffalo Music Hall, the, it's a grand Romanesque style replacement, that it's the beginning of the great theater palaces yeah although just a few years later you know michael shea is going to start building his you know grand palaces when i envision german architecture I, of this period i think of like heavy the exterior is you know very imposing and with uh, the shea type stuff just thinking of shea's itself 
the exterior is not the knock your socks off part. It's the interior, yeah. which is more, I'm going to say, sort of like soft fabrics and plush velvets and, you know, that kind of thing. So two, sort of two different sensibilities. The Germans also, as a as an empty, I feel like I have to speak up for my people here. Uh, <laughs> my people didn't land here, but this is also where uh, beer making starts to really take uh, roughly around here. Do you have a better sense of that, Steve? Or? Well, yeah. And, you know, and I think it also sort of points to something that Ron was talking about earlier, where, you know, we think of theater and we have a very specific refined sense or idea of what that is. This was more of an entertainment hall. And this is maybe where things like a sporting event could have happened inside of this, uh, this building. One of these uh, German halls, and I don't know whether it was this one or not, because <laughs> as we've mentioned, a couple of them burned down. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a place where Grover Cleveland, he opened it up with a, I don't remember whether it was a run for mayor or run for governor, run for president. <laughs> I don't know. But this was where uh, where his people. And again, it was the, the money from beer making. What is now our medical campus district was the German beer making district. Yes. And as you walk around now looking at you know, hospital buildings and we see Roswell Park and Buffalo General, uh, if we were to walk around you know, during the time that this hall was built, we would see malting houses and grain elevators and beer making operations, which we still have a couple of those left over, but it was the money made from all of those things which allowed us to build these grand halls, both this one and the, the Elmwood Music Hall, which was sort of the, the next version of that, which was uh, at uh, Elmwood and Virginia. And this is maybe where theater and entertainment start to branch off a little bit because for years, the Elmwood Music Hall uh, was a place where uh, they played basketball games and um, you know you would have musical concerts and that's where people would would make that stop between New York and Chicago if you were a musician or a traveling sports actor or whatever the case may be the um, Broadway auditorium sort of in the same in the, the same idea originally built as a uh, an infantry hall but repurposed into an entertainment venue and now it survives as the Buffalo barns where we <laughs> store our snow plows <laughs> for the winter so so, you know, all of these different places in Buffalo, all these big halls and these these German places allowed for more entertainment to come into Buffalo, which I think paved the way for maybe for some of the, the theater that, that, that came here eventually that we're talking about. The other thing that I wanted to uh, to throw in, and when we're talking about forms of entertainment, is circus is another one of these that's kind of around this time period starting to to be part of what people do. And you know, Buffalo primarily a working class town, but also has you know, money at this time. So you, you're beginning to have these divisions of, quote, popular culture and high culture, but you've got all this kind of crossover. So when we talk about theater, at least when I talk about theater, I'm thinking about that entire spectrum of kinds of ways to entertain yourself after the workday is over. Circus might be in one of these music halls, as Steve said, is one of the variety of different types of entertainment. When we think about even sorts of entertainment that aren't around anymore. The Cyclorama building was mm -hmm. built, um, you know, yes. as sort of like a early moving image. I've done a lot of research and, and wrote an article about it. It is fascinating. It's, it's sort of a standalone thing, but it is theater and it did bring together. There are pictures uh, folks lining up to go in and you see, you know, guys with top hats who obviously came from Delaware mm -hmm. and you see people who are dressed uh, and not quite top hats who are probably coming from the infected district. It sort of brought everybody together. And it was just this, this amazing thing that everybody had to see 
at the Cyclorama building, which, you know, these large moving tapestries and the seats, just all kinds of amazing things. But it was theater and it did bring uh, people together yeah. um, in a way that we don't even have anymore, that we can't even conceptualize. A kind of precursor to uh, motion pictures. Right. Yeah, the, the Cyclorama is just fascinating <laughs> all, all on its own. So we have Michael Shea, uh, a mere eight years later, we have him in 1892, <laughs> opening his first theater. So somehow he must have done very well with his saloon, and now he's opening Shea's Music Hall at 11 Clinton Street. And again, going back to what Steve said, 11 Clinton Street, it's probably not far down the road from the, the infective district. Right, right. 11 Clinton was probably uh, very close to Main Street because it's a Clinton Street that comes in right next to, um, well, what was Kleinhands? Near Church Street. And right. And I don't know how far it went, but it was probably right around, not where Kleinhands Music Hall, but the- Yeah, Kleinhands uh, Men's Shop. The AM&A's block is probably about where this was. Right next to uh, the Lafayette Hotel right. and, and now the Buffalo Public Library. Right. Mm -hmm. Go on. So that's his first first theater, Shea's Music Hall. You know, I originally included so many street addresses because I thought it would be potentially useful to, um, you know, unknown people in the future who might want to check, you know, drive by these places and see what's there now. But also kind of added bonus to that as we're talking about this now is realizing just, I mean, we're kind of, first of all, seeing what a small community Buffalo was in comparison today, but also we're watching it expand, mm -hmm. you know, as right. our story goes on. Well, it's so great to get Steve's perspective on this, oh, on absolutely. where everything is. So th these addresses are, you know, really valuable, uh, I think. What's rare about this is, I mean, I'm learning so much from it because it's, you know, I'm not from here, but I've lived here for, geez, close to 40 years. And it yeah. makes a lot of sense. We're sort of watching this community be born born from the flames, as it were, of 1812 yeah. Yeah. Into, into something that is a modern city. Yeah. I don't know how much we want to talk about Catherine Cornell, but in 1893, Catherine Cornell is born from a prominent wealthy Buffalo Society family, is born in Berlin, but she's raised in Buffalo and played at the Buffalo Studio Club Parlor Theater, located, another address, at 508 Franklin Street. After Cornell had become famous, she often brought her productions to her native Buffalo. Many performed at the Erlanger Theater on Delaware. Interesting that she's from a prominent, wealthy family, and she goes into uh, acting. Th that foulest of, right. <laughs> of forms of entertainment. Money, the world is your oyster. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, one of the major figures in American theater of this time. I think one of the things that's happening with Buffalo at this at this time that we're talking about is we have culture coming in from outside, and we also have culture generated in Buffalo. Uh, by culture, I mean the arts, theater, music, you name it, starting in Buffalo and then going out into the world. So you have to keep in mind that the kind of world we live in today that is like a global, you know, Marshall McLuhan's global village did not exist at all. It was much more these sort of fragmented groups of people living, you know, throughout the country. But you'd have to travel to a place like Buffalo to see something like the Pan Am Exposition, to learn about things that were happening elsewhere. You couldn't, there was no television or radio mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I don't think there's much radio. I mean, there's definitely no television. There's absolutely no internet. So to find out about things, you have to, in many cases, see them with your own two eyes, experience them, hear them with your own two ears. If you want to see great works of art, you have to go to a museum to see them. They're, if you're going to see reproductions, they're going to be really poor quality ones and all of that. So it's a, it's a, it's a different way of relating to the world that involves people directly experiencing things. And also this notion of hubs of, you know, information comes in, information goes out. You will notice that throughout the, the sort of grand period of Broadway and also um, American uh, motion pictures, you start getting all these references to Buffalo. There are all these 42nd Street, the original Busby yeah. Berkeley film has, of course, shuffled off to Buffalo. Uh, and again, we're, we're talking many decades later, but I'm just trying to use this as an example. Buffalo becomes a reference point uh, hmm. in popular culture. And I think that's largely because it was a stop on the, the circuit, the vaudeville circuit, later the, the theater circuit. We're going to be coming around to some of those things. But the people that are writing these plays know about Buffalo partly because of performers and playwrights and so forth, but also because their shows are going to Buffalo. And so long before I moved here, I was aware of, of Buffalo from all these pop culture references yes. from old movies and and uh, stage shows and so forth. Yeah, I never I never thought of that, but of course of course that would be that would be true. Uh, okay, I don't know if this was in yours, Ron, or if I added this. I, I can no longer tell. Yeah. Actually, I can't tell at all what was in yours and what was in mine. I know that 99% of this early section is all of yours. Mm. I, I The Adam... Adam Miscavige Library. Miscavige. Yeah. The Adam Miscavige yeah. Library and Dramatic Circle opens in 1895 and is the oldest surviving theater and, of course, is still used for theater by the Torn Space uh, Producing right. Group. And they still have a library upstairs full of plays and, of course, the greatest selection of Polish beers yes. <laughs> within right. a thousand-mile radius or, or whatever yes. it is. But I, I think that's an interesting point. Just like those Germans building the large hall, and they were they were further along. The Germans started arriving at Buffalo in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. The Polish immigrants started coming here around, you know, in the 1870s and 1880s, and they built St. Stanislaus Church, which is only, you know, a couple of blocks away from the Miscavige mm -hmm. Library, and they started to build their own theater. And that's what we see. That so It's sort of the branching out of the Poles. It was the Polish people that built this place because they wanted to bring a piece of home mm -hmm. uh, to Buffalo. Polish culture, and, sure. Polish culture. I mean, there is no greater Polish culture, some might say, than uh, it's, it's great that the uh, Miscavige Library and the Chopin Singing Society both survived to this day by all of us getting drunk in the streets <laughs> on the day after Easter. But but it's true. You know, that's that's where the Adam Miscavige Library chases its uh, history back. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, each every time we bring in more culture to Buffalo, every time we bring in a, a different set of people, a different group of people, or we have a, a group of people like, you know, Catherine Cornell's family. I don't know the exact history, but I imagine that, you know, her bringing her gravitas and her family's wallet well, uh, helped bring something to theater that, that wasn't there before. So each time these different pieces of Buffalo decide that they want to, you know, encourage some sort of entertainment or theater, it happens. And, you know, uh, <laughs> the Miscavige Library has uh, survived the years, and uh, it really is a great place to go and experience uh, Polish culture. Oh, it's it's not necessarily 
Polish theater. It is uh, certainly Polish culture there for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's immigrants. Uh, we get the job done, as uh, Lynn Manuel. Right. Uh, so, 1896, Vitascope Hall, probably the first movie theater, opens in the Ellicott Square building. I've read about this as well. It's debatable, though, correct? Yeah, I, I I think I did some research on it, probably based on something that you had written earlier, Ron, or something. But <laughs> but at the time it was written, and it's difficult to know, you know, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I haven't researched this outside of Buffalo newspapers. But it was billed as the first theater built, in, first movie theater built in Buffalo as a movie theater, and I think that's what the the big idea was. Well. Even just to look at the impressive nature of the Ellicott Square building, which oh. when it was built was the largest office building in the world. So people had never seen a building that big. To build this largest office building in the world, to include within it a movie theater, which is specifically built in such a way that we can show films in the way that they are meant to be shown. Um, you know, all of this, like, like Ron talked about earlier, you know, cutting edge technology and making use of it. Um, so whether it was actually first in the world or not, which is what it was billed as the time, I guess up for debate. But the fact of the matter was, it was this cutting edge space in this cutting edge building in this cutting edge city that was Buffalo. And the fact that we had uh, all that that wonderful power flowing from Niagara Falls, right? Um, you know, and the fact that Buffalo was the city of light. You know, all of these things kind of again that confluence of thinking of everything that was going on in Buffalo during this time makes the Vitascope Theater just a, an interesting little part of it all. How does this match up to the Pan Am Exposition year-wise, historically? Off the top of my head That's now, I... Uh, 1901, right? Right, yep, just a couple of years later. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so much of the, the Pan Am, you know, the, President McKinley was shot outside of the, uh, you know, the, the music the, palace. The musical the, palace, the, right, yeah. the music hall there. So... Um, I think it's, this is, it's probably safe to say this might have been the first movie theater in, in America... Uh, the, yeah. world, the world, you know, is, is questionable, right. but, but built well, for that purpose, you know, and that, that, I mean, people were yeah. showing movie, you know, I could turn this room into a movie theater if I sure. wanted, if I just put up a projector and throw it against the wall. But right. the fact that they took, you know, like that earlier theater that we talked about that had the trap doors and all these different mm -hmm. things. This was the first room that was built so that you could go in and enjoy a movie. That, right. Maybe the same way that if any of us walked into a, you know, the first time we walked into a movie where it had like the, the special seats that laid back and, you know, <laughs> that, that's really nice. Like, wow, this I've never been in a theater like yeah, this yeah, before. Yeah. I'm sure that was the idea, the feeling walking into this place for somebody uh, in the 1890s. Yeah, it could get completely dark, and there, the seats were in probably rows, perhaps even adjusted height rows. Who knows? Now, I find this interesting. I, I, probably not much to say about it. Maybe, Steve, maybe you can throw in something. But 1897, I know this was me throwing this in. The Lancaster Opera House is built, and of course now that is... Uh, a regularly uh, scheduled has you know theater season there 1897 building this opera house way out on Broadway way out that's quite a long way from the canal district and, yeah it's the and, sticks and, yeah it's the sticks and it's yeah. really not that many years beyond where we were talking about staying tightly to the canal district um, or to the center and, you know, the village of Lancaster, like a lot of the, the, the places that we now know as <laughs> suburban Buffalo. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, it was a tiny, it, it was sort of a microcosm, maybe, of, of what was going on in the, in the village of Buffalo. And yeah. that's a majestic building, the, the oh, Lancaster yeah. Opera House. It's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's it says, and, you know, this is just me thinking about this off the top of my head, maybe it says, it speaks to the, the level of 
theater and entertainment that was going on in Buffalo mm-hmm. that 20 or 20 miles away in, in, uh, in the village of Lancaster, they would have wanted their own theater. They would have wanted their own space to, uh, to have space. the same sort of, uh, the same sort of, uh, idea as you had in, in Buffalo. So I wonder, and it's not in here, but I wonder when the Fredonia opera house was built because that's another much further distance South. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I can, I can buy into the whole theory that, you know, here's, here's a group growing up over here and they're saying, well, we don't want to travel all the way down there to see acts. Let's build our own little opera house here. Why not Williamsville, Amherst? Why isn't there an opera house there? Why is there one in Lancaster? It, it's always, it's always puzzled me that Lancaster and Fredonia have these surviving opera houses. I've also wondered exactly, you know, what the definition of uh, what kind of opera went on in these places because mm. they seem too small to me to be while they can be extravagant they seem like too small to stage like a you know huge Wagnerian opera of the day mm-hmm. and and that's something i just don't know enough about but i do know that you see these in a lot of small towns uh you know i've spent a lot of time in hammondsport new york in the finger lakes and there's an opera house there as well i don't think it's been open for decades but yeah. but you notice these all over the place and i think it's yeah i just don't know about exactly what their original function was why you know uh you know we're looking at 125 roughly 124 or five years ago right when opera was an extremely you know that was a, a sure. um not just a popular art form but a but an art form for the masses more so than we think of today where the opera is something you get all dressed up to go to mm-hmm. and it's really expensive i think it had a, a sort of humbler meaning at least in the united states in these smaller communities but maybe euphemistically as you know we, we stopped calling them theaters in the wake of what happened right. at ford's oh, theater yes, uh, i mean good. euphemistically but also uh, i know many of the early movie theaters we tend to think now of you know the when we say theater we tend to think of something grander than a movie theater but i, I kind of think and and this is just from my impression of, of looking over uh, and knowing that the earliest movie theaters were called movie theaters so in 1897 if you had a couple of movie theaters around and you wanted to differentiate yourself from a movie theater what would you call yourself well let's call ourselves an opera house i don't i don't, I don't know whether that's true or not yeah I, I just think that that's a possibility that Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then sometimes there are legal purposes for this. There's the whole phenomenon of the Boston Hotel or the, oh, there was a really famous uh, one of these hotels in Buffalo that burned down. I can't remember the name of that. It's not our understanding of uh, uh, Blockport has one of these hotels. They're not hotels in our modern understanding at all, but that's related to prohibition because mm-hmm. you could call something, uh, you know, it, it, that's a whole nother story, but yeah, there could be one of those reasons for, but yeah, but your theory makes a lot of sense to me. Sure. Sure. It does. 1900 Buffalo music hall is completely remodeled into Shays tech theater. There's that name again, Shays a seating capacity of over 3,000. That's uh, like the current Shays Buffalo Theater with the, you know, what do they call it, an acre an acre of seats? That's bigger than the population of Buffalo when we first started this time. Oh, way, sure. way bigger, yeah. way bigger. But that's amazing. And then another insert here, 1901. After a fire, Jacob F. Scholkopf, a local tycoon, bought the German Young Men's Association Music Hall, 
At auction for $6,000 with an eye and ear towards transforming the gigantic ponderous castle into a theater, naming it after the Castle Tech, which stood atop a mountain overlooking Sholkoff's birthplace. The Tech opened during the Pan American Exposition, which also took place in 1901. Sholkoff family, one of the you know big movers and shaker family, uh, movers and shakers as opposed to shaker families in Western New York, bought the property and wanted to make it into a theater. He wanted to call it the Tech after the Castle Tech, which was a castle uh, in the mountains outside his hometown in Germany. People, these immigrants are bringing reminders of their past homes to their new home. The newly christened Tech Theater did reopen as the Tech in 1901. Then Shays, boy, this guy's busy. 1905, Shays, he must have been doing very well because he just keeps branching out. 1905, yeah, Shays, Shays Vaudeville House on Court Street opens. And I found... As, as I found so many pictures of these things on your website, Steve, uh, Buffalo Stories, supposedly the grandest vaudeville house in Buffalo was Shays on, on Court Street, right right about where the Liberty Bank building right. uh, uh, faces. Yeah, the, the Shays vaudeville house, supposedly one of the grandest vaudeville houses ever. 1906, Jesse Bonstell runs a repertory company from Buffalo's Star Theater. Operated by Peter Cornell. And guess whose father he is? Catherine Cornell, who becomes a part of Jesse Bonstell's company. And although there doesn't seem to be very much to say about Jesse Bonstell at this point, I'm sure there'll be much more to say about Miss Catherine Cornell in a future episode. So, gentlemen, let's stop it here for now. Thank you for your participation. And we'll be back again with part two of the early years of Buffalo Theater in the next episode. I know, I know that's a weird place to stop, but we have to stop somewhere because the, the thing goes on for hours. Yeah, it's a two hour, uh, it's a two hour, it actually was four hours of an interview with Steve and Ron, and I edited it down to, <laughs> to two hours. So it's going to be the first and second episode of our LTP's Off Road Buffalo Theater history. I had to stop it somewhere. I'm sorry it seemed like an abrupt stop, but eh, what are you going to do? So that's it for this week, and we will continue this same timeline with a history of Buffalo Theater in a couple of weeks. And it picks up right in 1908 where we left off, but this time with the opening of Duville College's Auditorium. And I think you know where it's headed from there. So please remember to subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean. Wherever you get your podcasts, that's where we'll be. As a history of Buffalo Theater continues with the second of eight episodes dedicated to the glorious history of theater in Buffalo. And speaking of glorious theater, remember, Road Less Traveled Productions reopens on November 4th with Hand to God. Great show. Make sure you see it. Tickets are probably on sale right now. And we will see you again next time here on our LTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pomisano.